in the heart of Africa. There is a place known as the land of a thousand hills, lush and green, a land of great vibrancy, full of life, red fertile soil that supports some of the most beautiful landscapes you'll ever see. And yet, like all places in the world where we find tremendous beauty, we also find brokenness, orphaned and vulnerable children with no memory of parents, unseen by society, without the assurance of a meal, the security of shelter, or the dignity of work. But in the gap we find between God's beauty and our brokenness, we believe that God can build a bridge, that grace received and grace shared can turn mourning into dancing, great grief into immeasurable joy, bondage and brokenness, into hope restored and hope renewed. And so today, you are invited on a journey to Rwanda, as together we remember the central affirmation God's story is a story of grace. Well, I want to welcome you this morning uh, to those here in the chapel uh, at the well, those upstairs in the loft at the Well Cafe. Uh, welcome to you today, especially if you're a first-time guest with us. My name is David. I serve as the senior pastor here. And again, if you're a first-time guest, we're delighted to have you today. We'd love to meet you and, and welcome you uh, in person. Um, I am thrilled to be here today. First thing I want to ask you to do is if you have your Bible, pull that out and uh, turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, we have these blue Bibles available for you uh, here in the chapel and also upstairs in the loft. Uh, you'll see on the screen uh, the page number to get to Mark chapter 2 in this uh, blue Bible if you like to find that. Uh, it is good to be here with you uh, this week. Um, I was supposed to preach last weekend and I spent the entire week leading up to last weekend in bed sick. So I wasn't able to share with you, and I was really disappointed uh, about that because I've been looking forward to sharing all the messages uh, in this series. I said last week, though, that I did learn something. Some of you already heard me say this. Uh, I did learn that if you would like to be treated uh, like a VIP in the emergency room, all you have to do is show up late at night with a fever and tell them that you just got back from Africa. Now, if you do that... <laughs> You will be ushered immediately into a room. You will be treated just like royalty. I mean, you will, people will come in in full, you know, hazmat uniforms to speak with you. Uh, when people walk by your room, they'll kind of stare in through the window to see what's going on. Everyone just kind of stops when you walk by. I mean, it's like being the king or queen, as, as far as I can tell, if you show up in, in those conditions. But I did not end up on the evening news. That was good. I was really worried about that when we were heading to the hospital. Uh, I, I don't have a bowl. I wasn't worried about that. We were thousands of miles away from that. But, of course, they were worried at first. And uh, if I had malaria, it's gone. So amen to that. It's gone. I've taken plenty of drugs, and I'm 100% this weekend. So yes, thank you for that polite golf clap that I'm not, I'm not dead. I, I don't have uh, malaria. I also had a birthday yesterday, so thank you all for the, uh, for the birthday wishes. I uh, want to express thanks to every single one of you except Zach Stewart, uh, who wished me a happy 40th birthday. Um, if you're 40, that's great. There's nothing wrong with being 40. I'm just not 40. I'm 37. So just I wanted to clear that up. <laughs> In case you had seen that, uh, I'm 37. So if you're brand new, let me just reset a few things for you about this series that we're sharing. We are sharing some, some video and stories from our recent trip to Rwanda. Uh, and we went to Rwanda for the, the purpose of reconnecting with some orphan communities that we support there. 
in our partnership with an organization called Zoe Ministry. And, and the financial gifts that we provide for Zoe uh, funds an empowerment program for these kids, a three-year program. And at the end of that program, here's what every kid who's gone through it and graduates has. This kind of gives you a sense of what they do. At the end of the program, every kid who graduates has food and economic security, meaning they not only have food for that day, but they have a way to get food on an ongoing basis because of a project that they have, a, a group project, a small business they run, some sort of project that enables them to create funds, to buy food, and they have that on an ongoing basis. So they no longer need our financial support or, or Zoe's work. They're, they're really set free because they have those things. The second thing that they all have is they've received training on proper hygiene and health practices so that this food and economic security that has been enabled for them, that that is not undermined by a health issue that they might have after Zoe leaves and is not connected with their life uh, in, in the same way that they are during, during the program. The third thing that every kid has is a home, some sort of a home that, again, provides security for them on an ongoing basis. And what's really amazing when you meet these kids and hear their stories is not only do they have these things that Zoe has helped them achieve in their life, but, but often what you hear from these kids and what you see and what they do after the program is that they themselves actually begin to replicate the program in their own communities by reaching out themselves to orphaned and vulnerable children that they know and helping them in the same way that Zoe has helped them and, and we have helped them through, through our gifts. So we're really not only changing the lives of kids who go through the program, but really by the way in which these kids are working in their own communities, we're, we're changing other, others' lives as well. It's really a tremendous program. And so we've been celebrating that sharing with you stories, and we're going to do that again today. I'm going to show you one more video, but I want to set it up in this way. You're going to hear first uh, from Epiphany, who leads uh, Zoe in Rwanda. You're also going to hear from two girls, uh, from Seraphim and uh, from Chantal. You're going to hear that through a translator. You're going to hear their stories, and the reason that we wanted to share these two young women's stories with you is that it highlights, in particular, one of the vulnerabilities that young women specifically, young girls have, uh, before Zoe begins to work with them in their lives. So let's, let's see that video now. Look at the girls. Some of them got babies when, at their young age. It is because in payment of a room, some men take advantage of them, pretending they are offering them a place to stay. She is sexually abused because she doesn't have a home. Her name is Seraphine. She was 14 when her mother died. Her father was drunk and abusive. She's the oldest in her family and got six siblings. When you are poor and depending on handout, you talk to anybody, to anyone. One man, he asked her to sleep with her. And anytime she would go, she get 500 and she slept with him. And the time she knew that she was pregnant, he told her if she ever tries to say something, he will kill her. And she kept quiet. She told nobody until she has her baby, but he doesn't help her. My name is Zibi Hoichi Shantar. I am an orphan. I don't have father. I don't have mother. I have never known them. 
I work for the neighbors to get something to eat. She would pass two or three days without eating. A boy came and asked her for sex. She accepted because she had no other choice to get something to eat. After sleeping together, she got pregnant. After getting pregnant, the boy refused that it is the one. So she stayed with the baby. She heard that Zoe Ministries is going to come here to work in this sector. They were taught what we call dreams, where they were writing what they like, what they don't like, the principles of reaching their goals. After writing and understanding very well the dreams, Zoe Ministry gave them a hoe and seeds, vegetable seeds of carrots, onions, beetroots, in order to grow food to eat. They received a small grant to start a project that will help them reach their goals as they started writing them in the dreams that Zoe Ministry was teaching them before. Now with her business nowadays, she's able to feed the baby. Also, she has got money to buy shoes, to buy clothes, things that she could not do before. Here in Rwanda, we have a proverb that says, one tree cannot make a forest. Before she was isolated, but because she's together with other children, she no longer feels isolated. Now, she thanks Zoe Ministry and Agape Mamas because of their instrumental support. Girls, when they have their own home, they are secure because men will not take advantage of them and they are not forced to do things they don't want. Every day that we were in Rwanda was an opportunity to hear uh, stories like Chantal's story, stories that are heartbreaking and yet stories of, of uh, young men and young women who have found hope restored in their life. Uh, tremendous stories that we're excited to be able to share with you in the course of this series. But I want to remind you of something, uh, not only as you think about Chantal's story, but also the ones that we've heard in, in previous weeks, that we're hearing these kids talk about the results of years of work in their life. Um, you see in, on their faces uh, smiles and excitement and joy and really pride for what's happened in their life. And you know that, the, that those expressions have replaced the, the, the expressions of sadness and grief that, that really marked their life before working with Zoe. But that happened over the course of time. It happened over the course of years. And what's true about my life and true about your life is also true about their life in that the change that we want to want to see in our life often comes much slower than we want, and it's much harder than we would expect it to be. And one of the reasons for that I just want you to think about is that while we often know what we want, I mean, if I ask you, how do you want to change your life? We know what we want. We, we may not be very good at knowing what we need. So we often know what we don't want, but not always what we need. Now, before you get defensive and think, well, no, I know what I need. Let's just do this. Don't think about yourself at all. Just think about everyone else in your life, okay? Think about everyone else in your life and think about this, this, this idea. Wouldn't everyone else in your life be better off if they would just listen to your advice? I mean, you, you've thought that before, right? I mean, you've maybe even said that out loud, whether it's your spouse or your children or your coworker or your boss, you have probably thought to yourself and maybe even spoken out loud, if they would just listen to me, their life would be so much better, right? You may have seen someone on the evening news and thought, wow, why did they do that? That's so dumb. They should have done this and this and this because you had it all figured out. You had the advice and wisdom that they needed in their life to get where they needed to go. And some of that's kind of silly. 
I mean, some of that is foolish on our part because we, we, we see 10% of the data and we make a snap judgment on what that person needs. Some of it's kind of foolish, but we all do that, right? But there is some truth to the fact that we often can see in others what we cannot see in ourselves. We can see in their situation, in their circumstance, what they may need, while we may struggle to see that in, our, in ourselves. We know what we want, but we may not always know what we need. And, and so when we pursue change, sometimes change comes slower in our life, and it's harder than we expect it to be, because we're pursuing what we want, and in the process, we're not always pursuing what we need. And so what I want to do today is I want to see, look at this principle lived out in an encounter with, uh, that Jesus has with a paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2. And then I want to talk about some things that we all need. If grace is going to do its full work in our life, three things that are needed in the lives of these kids and they're needed in our life as well, they're reflected in each of the stories that we've already shared, all that we'll share in this series, that we all need if grace is going to do its full work in our life. So first let me read to you from Mark chapter 2. And what you need to know before I, before I dive in here is that this is obviously very early in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark's gospel is only 16 chapters long. It's the most fast-paced gospel. So if you want to read one of the gospels front to back and you don't want to spend a lot of time, Mark's the one you want to start with. So there's your little hint for reading the gospels. Mark's, Mark's the quickest one. He's already to the point at the story where the crowds are beginning to grow as Jesus has started his public ministry. So verse 1 says this, a few days later, when, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. So the people heard that Jesus had come to the, to the community, the small village of Capernaum, and so they're coming to hear Jesus. Let me show you a few pictures from our trip to the Holy Land last year. This is a picture uh, of Capernaum, and then the next picture you're going to see is uh, of the excavation of first century Capernaum, uh, a small fishing village that is located right on the Sea of Galilee. So Andrew and Peter, some of the first disciples of Jesus, their home was Capernaum. They were fishermen, as was everyone who lived in this very small village. And what Matthew's gospel tells us is that when Jesus started his public ministry, he moved from Nazareth, an, an even smaller village in the northwest uh, portion of Israel, and he came to the northeast portion, the Sea of Galilee area, and made his home in Capernaum. So most of the public ministry of Jesus, his moving around, the crowds following him, it happened around the Sea of Galilee, which is really a large lake, again, in the northern portion of Israel. So here's what you need to know about Capernaum. This is one of those places that even if you're just walking by, you shouldn't blink, okay, because you're going to miss it. It's a very small village there right on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where Jesus has come, and the crowds have, have come to listen to him teach. Verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, and since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the, man, the mat the man was lying on. So Jesus is in a home in Capernaum. It's not clear whether it's the home he's living in, that he's made his home, or it's someone else's house. Let's assume for a moment that it's a host. Uh, it's another home that, that is hosting Jesus there for this, uh, for this event. And, and the crowds have come in, in such a way that, that no one else can get in to see Jesus. So think about this. You're getting to host 
Jesus who's coming to teach in your community. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, to think that Jesus is coming to your house and he's going to teach people in your house, that had to be a pretty significant honor. Until the crowd started showing up and people are sitting on the end of the sofa and they're knocking over grandmother's lamp, you know, and you're thinking about all the things you're going to have to clean up afterwards. Like, you've been a host before, right? It starts out fun. And then over the course of the night, you realize someone's going to have to clean this up and everybody else is leaving, right? You, you've had that experience. Well, if you've ever had one of those go wrong, okay, just, just more people showed up than you thought and, and the house was more of a mess. If at the end of the night, the roof was intact, Okay, you got off better than this guy. All right, he's hosting Jesus. Wow, great honor. And at the end of the night, he doesn't have a roof. Why? Because there are some friends who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they believe, they are totally convinced that if they can get him to Jesus, he will be able to walk again. And so what's going to stop you when you have a friend who is paralyzed and you want to get him to Jesus? Nothing, nothing stands in their way. They, they go up on the roof. They tear the roof apart in order to get him to Jesus. I mean, it's a tremendous story. And there's a sermon right there. I mean, just thinking about this question. Do you have the compassion and dedication to the people in your life that you would carry them to Jesus? I mean, that's a good question, right? Do you have that, that compassion and, and that desire that you would carry people to Jesus? This, if you've been a part of church for a while, you've heard a sermon on Mark chapter 2. Because it's a great story about four friends who have this level of dedication to their paralyzed friend. I heard a sermon this week on Mark chapter 2. I was listening to several pastors who uh, I listened to their podcast uh, during the week. And, and I heard a sermon on Mark chapter 2. Great, great sermon on Mark chapter 2. And it was about, do you have the compassion to carry your friends to Jesus? And in the beginning of the sermon, the pastor told the story of a college friend of his calling him because he was just in a crisis in his life. And so he's sharing this story of getting this phone call. And he said, you know, I immediately went into advice mode, going back to, we can always see in others what we cannot see in ourselves. And so he's giving him all this wisdom. And as he's going through it, he's thinking to himself, this is good stuff that I'm sharing right here. I mean, this guy's life's going to be transformed if he just will follow my advice that I'm giving to him. So he gets to the end of this phone call that he's feeling pretty good about, like, I'm super pastor, I've given some good thoughts here. He hangs up the phone and his wife walks in the room. The wife who knows the friend and knows a little bit about the situation that he's going through. And his wife asks him this question. She says, why didn't you invite him to church? He said his first thought that he didn't say out loud was, why don't you mind your own business? But he didn't... <laughs> He didn't say that. Instead, he received the question, and he said, you know, as I thought about the question, and I just kind of humbled myself there, he said, I realized that what my friend needed the most is what I offered him the least. Four friends who just had this conviction that Jesus is going to be able to transform this guy's life, and so they carry him and tear through the roof to get him to Jesus. Do you have that, that type of compassion and dedication? To the people in, in your own life. This is a, a total aside. I haven't shared this in any of the other messages, but it's important for you to hear here in the well and for those to hear upstairs uh, in the loft. You know, when you think about carrying people to Jesus, you think about this church and where we are in the life cycle of our church. You know what some of you might do in order to help carry people to Jesus and, 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 and provide that space for them to, to receive the good news about grace in their life is choose another service to attend on the weekend. And I know that sounds like I'm saying I don't want you here, but the reality of the chapel here today and also upstairs, it's not quite this, this case upstairs, but the reality of the chapel here today is there's not an extra seat. 
I mean, it's just, it's just jam-packed full. We had, a, we had visitors who came this morning who left. And that, as a pastor, just breaks my heart that, that we have other opportunities for worship, but this is a great one, and people are coming, and I know I'm, I'm meddling with you, and you don't like that, but I just want to mention that to you, that one of the ways that we can carry people to Jesus is by making space and saying, hey, I'll come Saturday night, or I'll come at 930. I'll find a different service because I want to make sure there's room at that hour for people to come. Okay, end of that sermon. Let's look at what happens next, okay? So these guys bring this, this friend to Jesus because they think Jesus is going to heal him. Verse 5, let's look what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, so Jesus looks up and he is impressed with the faith and devotion of these friends. That's pretty cool. You impress Jesus with your faith and devotion in bringing your friend. When he sees the faith of the friends, he looked at the man and he said to them, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine you're the friend who's up on the roof, and you're looking down, and you're just waiting. This is good. It's going to happen. And you hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. I mean, aren't you thinking, Jesus, he has other needs in his life. (laughs) Pay attention, right? Like, you have brought him to Jesus so that he will heal him. And the friend is there. Why? Because he wants to get healed. He wants to be able to walk again. That's what he wants. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is what you really need. Now, if you read on in the story, Jesus does heal this man. And he does walk again. But before he gives him what he wants and what his friends want for him, he first gives him what he needs. He says, your your, your sins are forgiven. And now, now I'm going to give you the ability to walk again. Why? Because we often know what we want, but we don't always know what we, what we really, really need. Now, let me remind you of something that, uh, that hopefully you, you already know. Um, hopefully you already know this, and this is just going to be a reminder, but it's something that if we're going to talk about grace doing its full work in our life, we all just need to be on the same page on, on this idea that grace has an agenda for your life. Has an agenda for your life. And the agenda of grace in your life is to transform your life. It is not simply just to make your life marginally better. It is not to take the happiness meter and the satisfaction meter in your life and just kind of turn it like 10% and make things marginally better. That's not the agenda of grace for your life. The agenda for grace for your life is the total transformation of your life. Meaning that every thought and every word and every deed, what grace wants to do is to transform those to being the thoughts and the words of Jesus lived out in your life. That's the agenda of grace in your life. And it's important to remember that. Because when we forget that, we end up pursuing what we want and not necessarily what we really need. And grace gets stalled, growth gets stalled in our life because we're pursuing what we want rather than what we need. So here's three things. Three things that I think what we all need uh, in our life. Three things that often prevent change from happening in our life and inhibit grace doing its full work in us that I've seen in my own life, I've seen in the lives of others, and we certainly see see it in the stories that we have shared of these kids on the other side of the world. Here's the first thing. The first thing is the absence of relationship. The absence of a relationship often prevents change from happening in our life and inhibits grace doing its full work in our life. One of the things that I used to say 
about this work that we're doing in Rwanda is I would say what we're doing is we're helping kids move from a life of hopelessness to a life of self-sufficiency. That was the phrase that I used. And when I went to Africa and I heard these kids' stories and I saw the way that they interacted with one another, not only those kids who had uh, who were about to graduate the program, but also kids that we saw who were years beyond their graduation point. They were years beyond receiving any financial support from us or from Zoe or any other direction. What I saw was what we are doing for these kids is not self-sufficiency. It's not setting an individual child free to pursue his or her dreams. What Zoe does beyond providing food and economic security in a home is Zoe takes isolated, unwelcome, unloved kids and brings them into relationship with one another. They form a new community, a new family. And what you hear and you see when you're around these kids is that they have a complete and total dedication, devotion to one another. They are living out for one another their conviction that they will not let anyone among them suffer or be in need. They are sold out to caring for this new family that has been created. And when a child is in need in the course of those three years or after, it is the community that responds and takes care of them and makes sure that everyone has enough food, that everyone is cared for, that everyone has security in their life. The gift that we give them is not just the gift we give to them individually. It's we give them the gift of each other as they live in community together. Now, self-sufficiency that's something that we would celebrate. I mean, that's kind of the Western American perspective. When we talk about things that we really value, we love the stories of individuals, the entrepreneur who has challenges in their life and they meet those challenges. I mean, that's just kind of a cultural value. And there's, there's, there, there's a lot of things that are good about that. The idea that we value individual contribution and hard work. I mean, if you have kids, who among us doesn't want our kids to understand individual contribution and hard work? I do. But one of the things that we miss that that, that that value sometimes undermines in our thinking is we forget how deeply we need one another. We forget how, how much our life and grace doing its full work in us is dependent upon having people in our life who are committed to us in the same way that we are committed to them. People who we are sharing life with. And my guess would be, as we look at those areas in our life where we are most vulnerable, for us as a church, just generally speaking, this is probably the area of our greatest vulnerability. And that we don't have those relationships and aren't investing to the extent that we should so that we are being nurtured and strengthened by a community that surrounds us. That's why a Sunday school class or a small group, that's why that's so powerful for you in your life. And that's why we want that for every single person who's connected here. Because the strength of those relationships help grace do its full work in you. So let me give you a little mental exercise to evaluate your own life and whether or not you have the relationships that you need in your life for whatever situation or circumstance you may face in your life. Let me give you a couple of thoughts of what could occur in your life. There's some circumstances and just ask you one question about those circumstances. I want you to think about what it would be like to leave the doctor's office after you've heard the word cancer. I want you to think about what it would be like to get that phone call that says that a loved one, your spouse, your child, your parent, a really close friend has unexpectedly died. And I just want you to ask, ask yourself this question, who would I call? Who would I call? 
Who in my life would drop everything that they have on their plate for that day at that moment in their life and would come to be with me, be with you in that moment of unexpected tragedy? Who would show up? Who would drop everything to come and be with you at that moment in your life? Or think about this scenario. Think about the scenario where you find yourself at a place where for whatever reason you are tempted to do something that you know that you should not do. Maybe it's a conversation or an interaction with, with, with a person of the opposite sex that you know is not what you should be doing. And maybe it's because of a marriage commitment that you have made or, or because of the values that you have in singleness. But you find yourself at a place where you are tempted to do something that you know that you shouldn't do. Or maybe it's something at work. It's, it's something that you, you, you're thinking you might do that you know you shouldn't do. You know it's something that would be, be seen in a very poor light by others. Or maybe it's that column, that, that, that number that you're going to put in on the tax return that you know is not quite accurate. You find yourself tempted to do something that you know that you shouldn't do. Who would you call? Not after it's happened. Who would you call before you found yourself at a place where you know you you shouldn't be? Who would you be willing to humble yourself before and say, I need some help because I'm about to do something I know that I shouldn't, I shouldn't do? Or what about this scenario? What if you found yourself, maybe because of an unexpected surprise in your life, what if you found yourself in a period of weeks or months where you just felt like things were not going okay? You felt like there was a darkness around you and things just were piling up in your life and you, you came to a point in your life where it was hard to say, but you looked yourself in the mirror one day and you just said, I'm depressed and I don't know what to do about this. And, and, and what would you do if you found yourself, maybe that period in your life, the, the darkness seemed so prevalent and so pressing upon you that you may even start to think things that you know you don't want to think, thinking about harming yourself in a way that you know you, you would, would be a, a bad thing who would you call? Who would you call? If you can't think of a handful of people who you would call, then I think that's a vulnerability in your life that you need to address. Because we all need people like that. We all need someone who will show up. Now, just to push you a little bit further, some of you might say, well, David, I would call you. Or I'd call Pastor Mike, or I'd call Pastor Johnny. I'd call one of the pastors here at the church. And here's what I want you to think about. If you called us, we would show up for you. We would be there for you because we have a commitment to you in your life. And because, hear this carefully, that's our jobs. That's what we do. And we're happy to do that for you. But who would show up, not because it's their job, but because they're committed to you in the same way that you are committed to them. Oftentimes, the pastor is called when we go to that idea of when we're tempted to do something we don't want to do. The pastor is called when the behavior has already happened and someone needs to confess what's happened in their life. And I'll often ask this question, was there anyone that you could have called and talked to about this? And over and over again, what I hear is, I just didn't know who to call. I didn't know who to call. So who are those people in your life? The absence of relationship is one of the, uh, a place of vulnerability. Here's the second one. The second one is lack of discipline. So when an orphan shows up first day, they know exactly what they want. They want food. 
They want food for their, for their bellies. They want someone who will end their hunger, if only for that day. And here's what Zoe gives them. A garden hoe. And, and Zoe teaches them uh, about how to plant seeds. And Zoe gives them those seeds as a grant. That's where our, our gifts often go, is to the seeds that then the kids plant. And they nurture. And then over the course of months, they harvest. And there's food not only to feed them, but also food that is available for them to sell, to create income, to, to continue to support their life. And Zoe does this not just because of that principle we've all heard of teach a man to fish so that they can have food ongoing, but also so that these kids can experience the dignity and, and the worth that we find when we participate in grace's work in our, in our own life, when we have the, the capacity, the discipline to invest in those, in those things. And grace at work in your life works the exact same way. That while many of us would celebrate the amazing grace that God has for us in our life, for some of us, grace has stalled because we're not doing anything with it. Meaning disciplining your life and, and structuring your life in such a way that God's investment in you begins to bear the fruit that it should. Spending time with Jesus in prayer and Bible study and devotion, moving worship from a convenience to a commitment, uh, investing in relationships in a small group, those kinds of things where we discipline ourselves so that the investment of grace in our life yields the result that it should. Here's the last one. The last one is unresolved anger. Unresolved anger. One of the heartbreaking things about being in Rwanda and listening to these stories is that the story that you heard from Chantal is not a unique story. It's a story that you hear over and over and over again, particularly from the young girls that, that you meet in the program. Almost every child in some way over the course of their life has experienced abuse. And when you listen to these stories and you sit with those who have come with you to, 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 to be ambassadors for all of us, uh, to, to, to be there and to hear those stories, you cannot help but think this should never happen to any child living anywhere in the world. And you would think the exact same thing if you were there. This should not happen in our world. No child should have to deal with this kind of abuse. No child should have to deal with this kind of heartache. No child should find themselves at that place of vulnerability. And, and no child should realize at that moment that no one is coming to protect them and no one is coming to keep them safe. We would all say that. And so if you heard those stories, who among us would judge these children for the anger that they feel? You would feel angry simply being there. You would feel a righteous anger that says, this should not happen in our world. So who among us wouldn't feel the exact same thing with them? We wouldn't judge them. If they shared with us feelings and a desire for vengeance, for, to get back at those who did these awful things to them, none of us would sit there and say, well, that's not the appropriate response to that. We would all feel it on their behalf. We all know what it's like to feel that sense of anger because of something that's happened to us or something that's happened to someone else. And, and we know in our hearts there is some justification for that. But this is where the teachings of Jesus presses us and pushes us perhaps harder than any other place in our life. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. And, and return not vengeance or anger or bitterness, but return, return love. And we hear that 
at times in our life and we think to ourselves, though we may not say it out loud, Jesus, that's ridiculous. Because we know that the anger that we feel is real, the circumstance that we've walked through is, is real and the pain is real. And here's what I know. I know that there are many people who are here today that you could come by my office and you could tell me a story like Chantal's story. You could tell me a story of perhaps someone that you loved and someone that you trusted who, who took advantage of you and abused you and did something to you that you would say shouldn't happen to any, ch any child, any person in, in, our, in our entire world. You could talk about a moment in your life where you felt vulnerable and insecure and, 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 and the pain of that experience is not only because of what happened but because nobody showed up and nobody stopped that circumstance that, that you had to walk through in your life. And here's, here's what I would say. I would say I understand how you feel. And I would say you're right. It's not fair. And I would say you're right. That shouldn't happen to anyone. And I would say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But here's what I would also say, and this is where Jesus would push me and where Jesus would push, would, would push you, is I would say that anger and that bitterness and, that, and that, that pain that you feel in your life, that desire to get back, there's justification for that. But if you don't do something with that in your life, it will eventually rot your soul. And what grace wants to do in your life, how grace wants to transform you, that will never happen unless somehow forgiveness comes. And I heard that story over and over and over again as you listen to the stories of these kids. That somehow, some way, because of caring people who poured into them, because of a new community they found, forgiveness was able to come. And grace was able to do do its full work. So maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's the absence of a relationship in your life that, that, that represents a vulnerability. Maybe you've already been through the circumstance where you've realized that and you've experienced the pain. Maybe it's discipline in your life, but maybe it's just a, it's a pain and an anger that, that what you might do today to start that process is just to let that go. And it may be somebody that you love, somebody that should have been there to protect you, that you have to forgive who may never apologize for what happened. Or maybe it's you. Maybe it's a dumb thing that you did and you just can't help but still feel angry at yourself for what happened. If grace is gonna do its full work, I know what you want, but here's what you need. You gotta let that go. You gotta let that go. So I want to invite you today just to, just to think about what is it in my life? Is it the absence of relationship? Is it lack of discipline? Or is it, is it something that I just need to let go of? Because grace has an agenda for your life to transform your life. Grace wants to do some amazing things in you. And if grace is going to do its full work, this is what we really need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We pause to give you thanks for your amazing grace and for what you say your grace can do. And as we think about that, Lord, we confess that for some of us, there may be things in our life that we have simply begun to believe are never going to change. They're never going to get better. 
That pain is never going to go away. And so I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters today that you would give us the imagination to believe that you can do what you say you can do. And that you would also, Lord, give us the courage to invest in that work you are doing. By investing our lives in others, by investing in grace, disciplining ourselves, and maybe, Lord, today by, by letting something go. We trust you to lead us in that, Lord. And we trust our lives and our circumstances to you as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.